Numbers 18. Numbers 18 is where we begin tonight. And Numbers 18, um, one of the things that's, that's unique about the chapter from the very beginning is you notice in verse 1, the Lord said to Aaron. You see that in verse 1. You see that in verse 8. And you see that in verse 20. The Lord spoke to Aaron. Now, over and over throughout the book, the Lord has spoken to Moses. Occasionally, the Lord speaks to Moses and to Aaron. Even when the direction is mainly given to the priest, the Bible says the Lord spoke to Moses and told Moses to tell the sons of Aaron. You see that in number 6. Verses 22 and 23, when uh, Moses tells Aaron about the blessing that he is to pronounce. The only other time in the Pentateuch that Aaron is addressed and Moses is not in the picture is in Leviticus 10 and verse 8. Leviticus 10 and verse 8. But the Lord spoke to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, you and your sons and your father's households with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary. And your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. In verse 2, but bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you to serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tent. Now, the phrase used twice in verse 1, bear the guilt or bear their guilt, uh, however it's translated. But that phrase that's used twice in verse 1 was used in Numbers 14, 18 to describe forgiveness. That God is a God who forgives iniquity, the text says. So that word, that same phrase, these same two words can describe forgiveness or they can describe in Numbers 14.34 the consequences of sin. Here in this case, it seems clear that it's an emphasis on the consequences of sin, not forgiveness of sins. The emphasis is that if that you and your father's house will bear the guilt in regard to the sanctuary. It will be stated throughout this that no unauthorized personnel is to approach God's house, is to approach the tabernacle. And if anyone does, wrath comes on those who were supposed to protect the holiness of that house. The Levites have been said throughout the book of Numbers to be guards of the tabernacle. You see that in 151. You see that in 310. You see that in 3 verse 38. All these places in the book of Numbers before that the Levites are to protect the house against unauthorized encroachment. But uh, if they are to do this, and if anyone, in verse 3, uh, if anyone shall uh, not come near to the furnace, 
excuse me, let me start with the beginning of verse 3. They shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligations of all the tents that they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary or the altar or both they and you will die. They're going to be in this chapter four warnings of death. Do this so that you do not die. 8, verse 3, verse 7, verse 22, verse 32. Four warnings that violation of these principles can cause death. But in verses 1, verses 1 through 7, I want to call attention particularly to verse 7. It says that you shall, you and your sons shall attend to your priesthood. You shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to perform service. I am giving you the priesthood, uh, a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now, in verse 7, the words used, the words are you are to attend... And you are to perform. These are the same verbs that were used back in Numbers 3, verses 7 and 8. Again, it is regard to the tabernacle. And we pointed out there, these are the same verbs that are used in Genesis 2 and verse 15. Where man in the garden was to guard and to keep the tabernacle. Or however it's translated in your versions. The same two terms are used in connection. These are used of the Garden of Eden. These are used of the tabernacle. Uh, The Garden of Eden was a kind of tabernacle. As God and man were dwelling together in fellowship with one another. And therefore, the holiness of this place must be recognized and observed. One of the key phrases in this chapter is God saying, I am giving you this or that. And in verse 6, He gives the Levites as a gift to you. Now, is that you the priest? Is that you all the sons of Israel? But God gives the Levites as as a gift Then in verse 7, he gives the priest as gifts too. Remember, as the last chapter closed, the people were overwhelmed with the sense of the awesome holiness of God and recognized the seriousness of coming into His presence unauthorized. And now in this section, you see that God has given the priest and Levites to guard the tabernacle and any unauthorized personnel may die. Now, do you have any questions there of things I didn't cover? I know we didn't unturn every stone there. But any questions that you have? Is it likely to be that it's the gift? Is it the gift to the priests or the people or do we well, really it, know? As far as the Levites, it's difficult for me to tell if they are a gift to the priest or to the people at large. It seems like with the priesthood, that is a gift to all the people. So maybe we should interpret them both that way. 
you know, I'm not exactly sure, but verses 6 and 7 are particularly verses that deal with God giving the Levites as a gift to you. In verse 6, verse 7, uh, I am giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service. Trying to break these down in a pretty easy way, and the notes that we give may be helpful with that, but Ryan... And that, that would be as an alternative to them giving the firstborn to the Lord. Okay, the Levites were given in place of the firstborn. They still have to offer a sacrifice when they have a firstborn child. They offer a sacrifice, but they don't give their whole lives in service and dedication to the tabernacle or temple as the Levites do. So yes, the Levites would have been in place of the firstborn in that sense. Okay? Now, let's look at this section of God giving offerings to the priest. God giving offerings. I I am hesitant to use this eraser because we're afraid that this eraser has, well, this eraser may have been clean. Has it been clean? It may have been contributing to our board problems instead of helping our board problem. So, um... We will erase asking no questions for conscience sake. But um, three, three or four ways we can divide up this section to kind of help us understand it. First of all, it's emphasized quite repeatedly in 18 through 20, in eight, chapter 18 verses 8 through 20, that the offerings of Israel are given to God. The offerings of Israel are given to God. Then, it is is emphasized quite frequently that God gives these to the priest. This is God's means of providing for the priest because... Their inheritance, they're not given an inheritance as other tribes. Their inheritance is the Lord. Now that is a very important point, but it's only mentioned once in the text. In, in, in verse 18, in this section, in verse 18, or verse 20, chapter 18, verse 20, then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the sons of Israel. So the Lord is their portion and the Lord is their inheritance. The Lord is their portion. The Lord is their inheritance. Therefore, God is going to have to provide for them in a different way that He provides for the other tribes. He gives them a portion of land and blesses the land with productivity. Uh, But with the priest, God is going to provide for them in a different way. And the way He's going to provide for them are the offerings that are made by the children of Israel. Now, this is also going to serve as a good, brief review of the offerings of Israel. Uh, In verses 8 through 10, we have the most holy offerings. The text calls these 
the most holy offerings. And these most holy offerings uh, are given to Aaron and his sons. Now the daughters are not included in this. But they're given to Aaron and his sons. They are specified in verse 9 as the grain offering. The grain offering, the sin offering, and the guilt or trespass offering. Now you may say, why are these sacrifices considered most holy. Well, there are five basic kinds of sacrifice, first of all. The burnt offering is not going to be mentioned anywhere in this chapter because the burnt offering was wholly consumed on the altar. So the priest doesn't eat any portion of it. That's not a way that God is using to provide for these priests. So the burnt offering is not mentioned. The peace offering is the other kind of offering and it's going to be mentioned as a holy offering, not a most holy. And we'll talk about the reason for that uh, in just a moment. But these offerings are considered most holy and they are to be all eaten by Aaron and his sons. And you read about that in chapter 18, verses 8 through 10. In chapter 18, verses 11 through 19, you read about holy offerings. They're not the most holy, but they are considered holy offerings. And what are these offerings? Well, in verse in verse 11, this is the wave offering. The wave offering was part of the peace offering. Now, why would a peace offering be considered holy instead of most holy? Is there a reason for that, John? Well, the offerer shares in that one. Yes, I think that's the thing. In these offerings that are on the board as most holy, grain, sin, and guilt, you offered a portion to God, and then the rest belonged to the priest. But in the peace offering, what made that different is not only was there a portion offered to God and a portion given to the priest, but there was a portion shared by the worshiper. It was the only sacrifice that the worshiper partook of, the peace offering. And therefore, it is called holy and not most holy. Now look at who could eat it. In verse 11, every one of your household who is clean may eat of it. In verse 13, he mentions the first fruits, whether it be the first fruits of their oil, their wine, their grain, all these first fruits the people bring to the Lord, and everyone of your household who is clean may eat of it. Verse 13 says the same thing as verse 11. After going on and specifying that when they uh, redeemed their firstborn, when they uh, when the firstborn son was born, as Ryan mentioned a moment ago, they offered a lamb instead of, instead of their son 
as a sacrifice or instead of their daughter. And when they offer this, then a portion of that belonged to the priest. And all of this, all of this belongs to the priest. And this is a way for God to provide for them. In verse uh, 19, all the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord, I have given it to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. So you see there, it mentions sons, it mentions daughters as ones who could partake of these. So, when Israel brings their sacrifices to God, that is a practical way in which God is providing for the Israelites. And they are God's gift because they are given to God. God could have had with every one of these sacrifices, like the burnt offering, God could have said, you wholly consume it on the altar. But He doesn't. God gives a portion to the priest. Now again, I know that we are dealing with this rather rapidly. What questions did you have in looking through this? Anything, Sarah? Covenant of salt. Covenant of salt uh, in 18 verse 19 is a phrase that's used three times. It's used in Leviticus 2.13. It's used here in Numbers 18.19 and in 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5. And it is believed to be the idea that I've heard stated most frequently is that it's probably a reference to the fact that it points to the eternal nature of the covenant. Because just like a salt is not supposed to lose its saltiness if it's real salt, and you couldn't prove all those kind of things by me, so you may have tried that in chemistry class or something, but it's supposed to not lose its salt, and, and therefore the idea is it's an eternal covenant. Okay? So I think that is the idea. Yes, Ryan. Just to reference Nehemiah thirteen, when they're not the priests aren't given their portions, and they have to go work the fields. Yes. Yes. Okay. I will say, after criticizing you a little bit, Ryan, you're jumping the gun a little bit. I was going to use that verse with this next section because they're not giving their tithes to the priests. So y'all just erase that from your memory. Okay. Ryan did not say anything about that. Yeah, it could well could save me time. That's right. Since I'm since I'm pushing on so valiantly tonight uh, to get us to get us on schedule to whip you guys into shape, you know, whip this class into shape. Okay, now how does God provide for the Levites? God provides for the priest by the offering, but the offerings were not for the Levites at large. The offerings were for the priest. And yet the same thing that is said about the Levite, the same thing that's said about the priest in 1820, that the Lord is their inheritance, is going to be said about the Levites. Look in verse, in verse 23. Only the Levite shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations, and among the sons of Israel, they shall have no 
inheritance. Then in verse 24, For the tie of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said uh, concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. So, no inheritance. Verse 23, verse 23, and verse 24. The priests had no inheritance. The Levites have no inheritance. God provided for the priest by these offerings that were given to him. And they give, in turn, um, uh, God gives them to the priest. How is God going to provide for the Levites? The means of providing for the Levites was the tithe. Was the tithe. Do you ever read about a tithe before the law? You ever read about that before the law? Where do you read about it? Melchizedek. He paid, or excuse me, Abraham paid Melchizedek a tenth of all. Well, he was returning from the spoils. Genesis 14, verse 20. There's one other place. Do you remember it in Genesis? Jacob has this vision and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And uh, he states, If you will bring me back here, I will surely give a tenth to you. Genesis 28 verse 22. So you read of it twice in the book of Genesis. And a tenth, a tithe means a tenth. A tithe means a tenth. You know, sometimes I've heard people use the phrase, I'm going to use this as my tithe, and and, and they, they're going to give a different percentage. Well, you know, I'm not saying you have to give a tenth today, but you can't tithe 5% or 15%. You can only tithe 10%. You're going to use a different word if you're going to give something else because a tithe indicates 10%. And uh, some have stated that this is almost like taxes. And, uh, of course, 10%, good enough for God, should be good enough for the government. Um, Not always the case. But, um, But anyway... 10% 10% goes to the Levites. What do the Levites in turn do with this? They have to tithe back. They give a tenth of that, a tenth of that to the priest. And you see that stated. You see that stated in um, verse 28 in particular. Verse 28. So you shall also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel, and from it you shall give to the Lord an offering to Aaron the priest. Shall give this offering to Aaron the priest. So also it is stated in verse 28, verse 29, verse 28, Excuse me, it's verse 29, verse 30, and verse 32. The New American Standard says that they are to give the best of the land. Do any of your translations have anything different than the best? The fat 
You're to give the fat. Literally, that word means fat, but it is translated best. And I do think that translation conveys the idea. The, the Levites are supported with a tent that the people get. They are given from the threshing floor, from the wine vat. They are given a tent of all that was produced. And they give from that, they give from the best of that, from the fat of that, to the priest. Now, why do I make a point of that word fat and best? I counted, I think this word fat is used like, I believe it was like 70 something times in the Old Testament. But it's used like 30 times. 30 times. From Leviticus 3 through 7. 30 times right there to talk about the portion of the animal that is put upon the altar. They offered the fat portions of the animal. What's the significance? Here in this text, they are offering the fat of parts that don't have fat, of grain, of wine. I think when God says that you give these portions to me, they were the best portions. That was the significance of it. Now, I recognize that when we are eating beef today, that we don't consider those portions that they used the prime cut. I am told, and I do not know if this is completely true, but in the poor countries of the world, where they have little meat to eat, the most coveted parts of the animal are going to be the very parts that Leviticus assigns as being given to God. Because those portions, like the liver, those are going to be full of nutrients and full of minerals and full of things that they're going to need in order to survive. They may not taste as good to us, but they are necessary for survival, and so those are the most coveted parts. And it's interesting that whether you're offering grain or whether you offered an animal, you gave the best of what you had to the Lord. Now, I, let me just call on one of you kind of randomly, Ryan. Uh, was Israel's history at paying tithes very good? No, that's a good answer. And no, their, their, their history of paying tithes wasn't always good. Now, he mentioned, what was the passage you mentioned? Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13, because there the, the Levites had to go back to work because people, in a regular job, because people weren't paying their tithes as they should. And Nehemiah rebuked the people because of that. Where are another couple of passages which, at least one other passage I can think of, that show the people were not faithful as a whole in giving their tithe. Can you remember any? Malachi? Malachi 3. Malachi 3, where God says, um, 
should a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. And they say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and in offerings. And he said, God says, test me or prove me. Here God is telling man to test him. Sometimes men tested God and God rebuked them for it. But here God is saying, test me in this. You bring your tithe into the storehouse and I will pour out to you a blessing that you're not able to receive. And all of that is in Malachi 3, verses 8 through 12. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 12. So as a whole, Israel's history was not a history of paying tithes. Now, I don't want to get off on this too long because I know we can, but I just want you to think about this. Um, I I was reading some comments in in a commentary that really focuses on being practical and does a pretty good job with that. On 2 Corinthians 89, where people are are giving, he took some some statistics and he said America is by far the most generous nation on earth because we're the most blessed. He said, we're by far the most generous. He said, not only are we the most generous, but the reason for our generosity, the very heart of America's generosity, are people like us who go to services, who worship God. They're the one who give most diligently. He says, that's the good news. He said, you know what the bad news is? The bad news is that even in this affluent country, most believers give, I think he said something like 3 or 4% of what they have to God. Now, I recognize we're not under a system of time. And 3 or 4%, in some people's case, may be like the poor woman casting in her mind in Luke 21. But it's just something to think about and uh, something to consider. But what did I leave out that I should have dealt with? Because I know I am rushing through to try to get us back on schedule. And um, so, you know, concise, quick question, Sarah. Go ahead. Did, did the priests have to give a tithe? It doesn't seem like it. No, it doesn't seem like it. Because they don't have any inheritance. They don't have any crops. And they are given, the Levites are given a tithe of the people. The priests are given a tithe of the Levites. But you see here too, that religious workers, and, and, and I'm one. You know, and I have been supporting pretty much my whole life, or at least part of my support from um, the free will donations of others. And so we need to, those of us in that position should be thankful for that. But you see how if any part of this chain breaks, everybody suffers in this picture. If people fail to give, the Levites don't have as much. The Levites don't have as much. Priests don't have as much. And so all of this fits fits together. Now, in chapter 19, the ashes of a red heifer. Um, Let me just read a few verses and ask you what sounds really different about this. 
Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is a statute of law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they may bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect on which a yoke has never been placed. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its flesh, its hide, its flesh, its blood, uh, with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take scarlet wood and and hyssop and scarlet, excuse me, cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the mist of the burning heifer. And the priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean till evening. I'm cutting it off a moment, but let me ask you, what is unique there? What's different than what we see any other place? Okay, one thing it's offered outside the camp. Where are sacrifices usually brought? Or this is I don't know that this is best called a sacrifice, but but where are they usually brought? Ten of meeting. You know, they're stated in Leviticus 17. You can't kill it anywhere else. So that is different. They are killed outside the camp. That is different. What else is different here? A specific, a specific color of the sacrificial animal. Now, do you remember that anywhere else? I am not remembering it anywhere else. I don't know if I'm overlooking something. But I don't know any other place that it specifies this color of an animal is to be sacrificed. But I'll tell you what else. There's one other fact that really stands out here. And what would that be? The whole thing is the whole thing is burned, including I mean, including all the organs and refuse. I mean, like yes, all everything, it. parts that were you know taken outside the camp, and particularly the blood. And this is the only sacrifice. In quote, and again, I, I use that in quotation marks. That may not be the best term. It's the only place where blood is used in this fashion. Now, when he killed the red heifer. He took the blood and sprinkled some of it seven times. We see right there in verse, uh, in verse four, seven times in front of the tent of meeting. But, but here, he takes it, he takes the, um, he takes this animal, he burns it all, and the purpose is to collect ashes from this. But, but the blood was always treated in different ways than it is here. So the very color of the animal is specified, the, what is done with the blood, where the animal is killed. All of these things make this a little bit unique. And the priest who took the animal out and slaughtered it, he is unclean till evening, and he must wash his clothes. The one who burns the animal is unclean till evening, verse 8, and he is to wash his clothes. In verse 10, the one who gathered the ashes is unclean till evening, 
and he must wash. Now, this section builds into our next section. Okay? You think, what are these, these ashes used for? We haven't seen that yet. We'll see this in verse 21 through the 11 to 22. What do you see here? What, what questions do you have? Do the priests become unclean after every sacrifice? No. Okay. That would be another unique point. Right. So it doesn't say, uh, at least if, if they do, I am forgetting it. But but um, there were certainly that the blood could splash on a garment and it could become unclean, but, but not just the priest every time they deal with with a sacrificial animal. That is unique. And everything that was going to make this cleansing potion produces uncleanness in the people bringing it to that point. Yes, it does. It does. I don't know if that should totally surprise us because there there are some things even that bring cleansing that render one unclean. Remember, you ask about the sacrifices in general. Where is one dealing with one circumstance and one sacrifice that, that did make you unclean? Do you know what I'm talking about here? In Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, the one that led the live goat out is, is rendered unclean by that process. So you do have, you do have something. I don't remember. It's if you want to write down, uh, it's verses twenty three through twenty eight of Leviticus sixteen, and you can write that down. I'm not remembering everything it says. Okay, so you write that down. I'll try to look it up, and you will uh, as well. And maybe if I need to correct anything Sunday, I'll try to do that. But as a general case, it's, it it does. But but like John said, I mean, this is not. This is not the run-of-a-mill situation, but often in the law, as Gordon Wenham likes to say, the most potent cleansers are also things that can defile in their wrong place. Blood was the most potent cleanser. But a woman who had an issue of blood is rendered unclean as a result of that. So... It's the same things that are often powerful for positive uses can be powerful for negative uses. Now, I want you to keep in mind, what, what is the purpose of this? We, we pointed out, and you all have been thinking, well, th- this is different. A lot of different things about this. But let's see what these ashes are used for. In verses 11 through 21, 22. In verse... Verse 11, the one who touches the corpse of another person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness and the water on the, with water on the third day and on the seventh day. And he shall be clean, but if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day, he shall not be clean. 
Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from the Lord, because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is... Everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who is in the open field who touches one who has been slain with a sword or has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Verse 17. Then the unclean person shall take some of the ashes of the, of the burnt purification from sin, flowing with living water, and shall be added to a vessel. So he, he's got a vessel with running water, flowing water. And he puts some of these ashes into it. And then in verse 18, a clean person shall take hyssop, and dip into the water and sprinkle it on the tent and all its furnishing. And the persons who were there um, and on the people who touched the bone of the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave. And then the person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify him from his uncleanness. He shall wash his clothes, bathe himself in water and be unclean to leave What's the significance of that? Let me me tell you a couple possibilities. The severe uncleanness in regard to a dead body shows us the seriousness of the circumstance. Uh, If you touch a corpse, you're unclean seven days. If you're in the tent where he dies... You're unclean seven days. Uh, If you touch a bone or a grave in the field, you're unclean seven days. So it highlights the seriousness of uncleanness. But if you were unclean seven days, what usually happened at the end of that time to make you clean? You usually had to offer a sacrifice. Now, there were some forms of uncleanness where you were just unclean till the end of the day. You washed in water, and that was it. And some you were just unclean till the end of the day. But usually, if you're unclean seven days, you offer a sacrifice at the end. Where was there a mention of sacrifice? In these verses? There's not any. Some have described, and I don't mean this to be facetious, but I think this is a good description that the ashes of the red heifer are a type of an instant sin offering. That the ashes are put there, they're mixed with the water, they're sprinkled with hyssop on the person, and they serve as a way to purify the person who was unclean from his contact with the dead body. And you had to wash on this had, had to have this water sprinkled on you the third day and the seventh day in order to be unclean. Now, how do we know these things don't apply today? 
besides simply the fact they're not mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus goes to Jairus' house and takes her by the hand and says, little girl, arise. Jesus was not made unclean by that touch. But Jesus gave life and healing as a result of that. You remember also the text said if you touched a bone or if you touched a grave, you were unclean. Do you remember when the widow's son at Nain in Luke 7 was in a coffin and Jesus touched the coffin and says, young men, I say to you, arise. Jesus, Jesus overcame leprosy, which was a severe cause of uncleanness. He overcame death, severe cause of uncleanness. All these things. Are the ashes of a red heifer mentioned in the Bible? Well, let me just, I'll answer that one. Yes. Okay. But I want to ask you another question. What book would you suppose is most likely to mention something like the ashes of a red heifer? Just think of the New Testament and think of the kind of literature we have. What book is most likely to mention that? Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 says this. Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who've been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You were... Cleansed, in this case, by blood of bulls, blood of goats, and the ashes of a heifer. They were, in this description, effective for the cleansing of the flesh. And if they were effective, Hebrews 3, excuse me, Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 say, how much more is a sacrifice of Christ? going to be effective for cleansing those, um, for cleansing those who through for cleansing us from dead works to serve the living God. And so the ashes of the red heifer even point to Jesus. Amazingly. Um, what am I leaving out that I ought to be mentioning? By the way, I do think that not offering a sacrifice, if a family had been devastated by death, particularly like if it was the breadwinner that died, a sacrifice may have been pretty costly. And so this is God's gracious provision. I saw Ryan's hand first. In verse um, 17, it refers to the ashes of the burnt sin offering in the ESV. Okay. I thought I think yours read different. Verse seventeen. Okay, it says the ashes of the burnt purification offering, um, but sometimes some have argued that the word for sin offering might be better translated purification offering. I think the word is the same here. Uh, burning. Yeah, it is the word. It can be legitimately translated either way there, but it's the word that is often translated sin. Okay. Yes, Sarah, you had a question as well. Um, yeah, just I have a, a strange note here, which I am inter- interpreting as 
one of the reasons why this was necessary is that for the next 40 years, they're going to come in contact with dead bodies on yes. a regular basis because yes. everybody's going to die. I mean, more than the, just like usual death. There's yes. There's not going to be kind of like the words of the of the 10th plague. There's not going to be a 10 in which there's not someone dead at one point or another. And this was uh, a way to deal with the uncleanness the uncleanness of death. But yes, death is going to be a very common experience in the wilderness. And doesn't this also, isn't there somewhere where, like, when the soldiers come back, they have to stay outside the tent for, or outside yes. the camp for seven days? Presumably. We're going to get that in the book of Numbers. Uh, in the book of Numbers, it'll be Numbers 31. Right. Lord willing. Very good. Wait, erase that, everyone. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I want to shine that moment. I don't want Sarah to be taking all that away. Uh, but, but uh, yes. Yeah, this, uh, to me, this all just seems really strange. Yes. Yes. I can understand why it would strike someone as magic. and so. But I want to tell you a couple things. We do some things that do strike me that way every Two. First of all, when I had to be in May in Florida and wearing that long gown and that graduation <laughs> ceremony, and it's already 110 degrees or so, uh, and you're wearing that, and then you go through such formality, we do things that are bizarre too, but they say something about what's important to us. And these say some things... You know, there was a consciousness of sin and uncleanness and and obstacles to God that just that maybe maybe we need to think more about. Not necessarily all in the same in the exact. Same. We saw that Jesus overcame the uncleanness of death. But I, I cut you off to make that point, though, John. What else did you? Well, it's kind of like it makes me wonder. Um, to some extent, was Jesus making use of that situation or was was God making use of that situation to show the greatness of Jesus or was that put in place so that the greatness of Jesus would be uh, accentuated? The uncleanness of the Old Testament I think is to create, part of it is to create a consciousness of the fact that something is wrong. You know, it, it, it's not that uncleanness itself is sin but it is a, death is a reminder of sin. Particularly these deaths in the wilderness are a reminder of sin. And all of these are pointers to Jesus, not just in a not in a real narrow sense, but in the broadest of all senses, that he is going to bring deliverance from from sin, the burden of sin. I am afraid sometimes that we've lost the wonder of salvation because we've lost a doubt of the horror of horror of sin and, and things of that nature. Mary. It also stresses the value God places on life. So when a life yes. is lost, then it has consequences that they all it is never it is never a minor thing. Yeah. It is always a profound thing that life has taken. And like and, and that will be when we get to numbers thirty one that Sarah mentioned. I think that that will stand out even more at the point you're making, Mary, because because it, it is just profound to see the situation there in which they have to cleanse themselves. They are fighting a battle at God's command and still taking a life is serious. But thank you guys. God bless.
and uh, take care. And we are on schedule.